when your listeners to the Cold War Conversations podcast want to experience the Cold War, there is no Cold War anymore. They, they can go back to the buildings that were there and they can feel, you know, a little bit of the coldness in those buildings. And that's why we preserve architecture, to keep our memory of those places intact. This is Cold War Conversations. If you're new here, you've come to the right place to listen to first-hand Cold War history accounts. Do make sure you follow us in your podcast app or join our emailing list at coldwarconversations.com. Today we welcome back Mark Baker from episode 9 where we spoke about his time in 1980s Czechoslovakia. Mark is a freelance journalist and travel writer living in his adopted hometown of Prague, where he's lived for more than two decades. Mark seeks out communist architecture in his hometown and further afield and is the ideal candidate to discuss the question, why preserve communist architecture? Did you know that you can really help the podcast by leaving reviews in iTunes or with your favourite podcast provider? It really helps us get new guests on the show and publicise the podcast. If you'd like to support us, then head over to coldwallconversations.com and click on the support the podcast menu option to learn more. Thank you so much to all our fans that are supporting us. It is really appreciated. Now back to today's episode. We welcome back Mark Baker. You know, the, the the way that we sort of got into the idea for this episode was I came mm-hmm. across your uh, blog post about uh, Carla Vivari and the Hotel Thermal. Um, do you want to just tell me a bit about that particular place? Uh, yes, Ian, I think I think that the Hotel Thermal in Carla Vivari is a great illustration for the question of why to preserve communist era architecture. Um, I think, uh, it, it, you know, it's, uh, it, you've seen the photos from the blog post, probably it's, it's a building that obviously does not fit architecturally with the rest of Carlo Vivari, you know, just to give you an idea of what Carlo Vivari is, it's an old time spa town. Most of the architecture dates from the 19th century. So, you know, if you can picture very elegant rot iron and woodworking uh, that makes a very harmonious spa, the kind of place that you would take an afternoon stroll by some of those wafers on the street. Colovari has this famous kind of cookie that you buy on the street, sipping from your porcelain mug of sulfuric acid. Basically, that's what it tastes like um, in the hopes of taking the cure and thinking about all of the luminaries that have visited Carlo Vivari in the past. So, you know, we're talking about uh, Russian czars, uh, Goethe, uh, you know, uh, Karl Marx was a visitor in uh, Carlo Vivari. And, and what the, was its German name? Is it more familiarly yes, known? Yes, it's called Karlsbad in German. That's the, you know, that's where that's how everybody would know about it. Marianska Lasnia is the other one that's right next to it. And that is called Marienbad you know, which right. is much better known in English by their German names. But anyway, uh, so along comes, uh, you know, the architectural planners, the, 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 the communist uh, party overlords of that town in the 1960s. And they have a very successful uh, 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 international film festival still going on, by the way, and still it gets better and better every year. But already in the 1960s, the film festival was coming under competition from the Moscow Film Festival. So the organizers, the people in the city, they want to keep the the film festival, the thing, the focus. So they hire some of the best young architects of the day to build, you know, something that would express, you know, the the the, the cultural richness, the heritage, um, the the ideas that are springing out of this town. Uh, in the 1960s, and they came up with the Hotel Thermal. It actually is not only just a hotel, but it also is the host venue for the for the film festival. So they have screens and projection rooms built into it. There are meeting rooms, etc. So it's a whole small complex there. Um, anyway, so uh, they hired a young uh, couple at the time, the Mc- the McConan couple. They went on to do some very famous buildings in the 1970s in. Uh, Central Europe, 
uh, for Czechoslovakia, and they built a building that was uh, that really conformed to the most interesting, the the the, the most vital uh, architectural ideas at the time, and that was a kind of brutalism. You know, I mean, a, a you know, uh, I don't know if your uh, listeners will understand, you know, brutalism, but I mean, just uh, you know, just think about all of those government buildings and uh, car parks in uh, in the middle of England, um, all those university buildings in the United States that were thrown up in the 1970s. Uh, it's a, kind of an exposed concrete exterior. All of the innards of a building are projected on the outside of the building. The idea was to become, the, to be very honest about what the building does, what the building is on the exterior of the building and not just on the interior of the building. You know, it was a it was an exciting idea at the time. I mean, you know, a lot of those buildings haven't aged very well, admittedly, but uh, that was the idea, you know, and, and that's the building that they designed. And I think it's interesting when you when you make those comparisons with with Western buildings, because then we're sort of saying that this isn't purely a communist idea. It was a general architectural genre that was developing at the time. Uh, yes, of course. No, uh, it, it's funny. I was thinking about this conversation today and what we would talk about. And it's so fascinating for me to put myself to put myself in the heads of some of these architects in Eastern Europe and not just in Czechoslovakia, but all across Eastern Europe. So think about architects all over the world. You know, they're dealing with all kinds of issues. You know, first off, they're dealing with their own creative impulse, their own ego to create. I mean, architects all over the world have that in Eastern Europe, of course, as well. Um, but then there are economic constraints, there are technological developments, and of course there are fashion components to architecture. You know, architecture throughout the decades changes, you know, much like our clothing changes. I mean, you know, some things look old-fashioned after a few years, and everybody's trying to design in that new fashion. Okay, so in Eastern Europe and in Central Europe, they also had to incorporate an ideological component to their architecture, if you will. You know, everything that they did had to be signed off by the planning board, by the local party bosses, etc. And each thing was second guessed and, and, and reinterpreted just to make sure that it also, in addition to all these other things, expressed the kind of prevailing uh, ethos of the socialist world. And of course, that was changing a lot. So, I mean, these guys did not have it easy at all. I mean... <laughs> You know, think about it. What is a socialist building? I mean, what is a building that actually evokes socialist or communist uh, aims in the ideology, in the structure itself? It's very amorphous subject to think about. Yeah, yeah, I guess so. I mean, in, I'm, I'm trying to put myself, put myself in the shoes of these architects. And I guess that they're trying to sort of portray an image of dynamism and progress as well as egalitarianism. Um and possibly simplicity in in that architecture to try and represent that that ideology. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, you know, uh, well, okay. Let's talk a little bit about communist architecture and and how the the fashions uh, evolved over the decades, and then try to discuss how architects would kind of fit their personal image into these various periods. You know, if you will. Yeah. You know, okay, so um, I, I think you can divide communist architecture into four or five different phases, and it really evolved in the decades after World War II, you know, in, in Central and Eastern Europe. At the beginning, say 1945 to, say, 1950, or until the death of Stalin in 1953, there was this desire in across all of Eastern Europe to imitate exactly what was going on in Moscow at the time. And, you know, Moscow architecture, Russian architecture, Russian communist architecture was a, a lot about uh, exalting the working class. It was to uh, it was called socialist realist architecture. And it was um, it really these are grandiose palaces. They're quite beautiful buildings in a way. They're quite hideous buildings, but, hit, you know, but beautiful in kind of a hideous way. Those those towers in Moscow, if you can recall, mm -hmm. the Palace of Science and Culture in Warsaw is a tremendously is a good example of one of those buildings uh, in in um, in Central Europe. We have one in Prague, of course, too. It's called the Hotel International. It was uh, designed and built in the 1950s here in Prague as a gift from the Soviet Union, of course. Um, that style of 
already by the 1950s felt old fashioned. It felt a little bit out of touch. But hey, you know, Moscow, Russia was calling the shots after World War Two. So, you know, there was really nothing that the local architects could do to fight it. They just kind of went along with the flow. Um, you know, we do have some nice buildings in Prague that are built in the style in the 1950s. Um, in, in addition to the Hotel International, which is one of those soaring towers. Um, <clears throat> but you, you can notice them by, you know, they're pretty big. They usually have some statues. They usually have some pro-socialist uh, statues and motifs on the sides of the buildings, etc. Et yeah, so they're normally, I mean, I've, I've been to the, the Palace of Culture in Warsaw, and certainly around the outside they have these stylized images of the workers, Yes, um, it's very much in that yes, socialist yeah. realist style. Yes, I, I personally love this style. And you talk about your email and Twitter that you're going to get after yeah. one of these episodes. But, you know, uh, I'm sure that my friends wouldn't believe me if I actually told them. But I live right down the street from the Hotel International. I can see it from my balcony. And my neighborhood would be so much more boring if that building wasn't there. So. You know, it's kind of like a little piece of Manhattan somehow stuck right in the middle of a residential neighborhood yeah. in Prague. And I think we'll get Prague. onto that controversy because, that you know, you take the Warsaw example, you know, there, there is or has been a lot of controversy around that building as to whether it should stay or or whether it should go. But it's used on all the the tourist information pieces as sort of like the logo Right. What would Warsaw be? Sorry, Polish listeners. What would Warsaw be without that building? You know, somehow the skyline looks like Dallas or Frankfurt or Houston. You know, uh, uh, otherwise, it's a, it's a, it's an interesting skyline. Warsaw has its own, you know, its own issues because, of course, the city was destroyed during the war and had to be rebuilt anyway in the 1950s uh, and 60s. Um, but yeah, you're right. That building lends an element of kitsch and character to the Warsaw skyline that actually is a plus, if you ask me. So what what would you say is the next phase then after uh, socialist realism? Right. OK, so the death of Stalin in 1953 sets off uh, also, you know, sets off all kinds of changes in every aspect of life in Central and Eastern Europe, including architecture. Um, you know, at some point uh, it took a while for this for this, the death of Stalin and its aftermath to be felt in architecture, but it was essentially the end of socialist realist architecture in the Soviet Union and also in Eastern Europe. So what happens next is, uh, is a push toward efficiency, I would say. Uh, you know, technologically, uh, the 1950s was a, a big boom year in technology for for industrial building and construction methods. So that meant that the, um, you know, the type of buildings that we associate now kind of uniformly with the communist architecture, those those um, those panel buildings, you know, the buildings that are built from concrete reinforced panels and stacked one on top of each other into boxes. Yeah, prefabricated building te technology really took off in the 1950s. So all around Central and Eastern Europe, you see experimentation in trying to build uh, mass um, housing projects uh, that are built straight from uh, from designs of, of, of panels, reinforced concrete panels built one on top of each other into boxes. You know, this was, this reflected, as we talked earlier, this reflected a kind of ethos, a sort of socialist fashion at the time, to try to do things in the most efficient manner possible. Right. You know, the, the, the war all over Europe, of course, and also in Central and Eastern Europe, uh, created a massive housing shortage everywhere. You know, there was a kind of boom in the 1950s uh, for housing construction, and, it, and that became a very important uh, aim of the governments was to give everybody a house, give everybody at least a roof over their own heads. And the way to do this the most efficiently and the most cheaply, you know, you have to say, is to to rely on these kind of mass construction prefabricated methods. And uh, that technology really got rolling in the 1950s. And was that method used for, I, I get it being used for uh, residential housing construction, but was that used for public buildings as well? 
Yes, yes, very much so. And, and will be continued. And, you know, if there's a theme that moves forward from this point is that, you know, if socialist realist housing was about expressing or socialist realist buildings were about expressing this monumentalism of socialism and communism, future building was more about expressing uh, a kind of mass uh, uniformity, say, or uh, an efficiency, a technological efficiency that was kind of the overriding ethos that drove uh, planners and ultimately architects wow. at that time all over the Eastern and, Bloc. And was that style also used in the in the West as well? Was there a catalyst for moving to that style aside from um, the need to build a lot of houses very quickly? Uh, yes, um, absolutely. In fact, uh, you know, there are public housing projects all over, particularly in France in Germany, of course, in England as well, and in the United States. I mean, uh, in the 1950s and 60s, this was seen as a kind of panacea. I mean, this is going to save uh, us, it's going to save a lot of money, and it's going to give a lot of people housing. Uh, of course, in the West, uh, you know, that whatever, that solution didn't always work out to be the best simply for, you know, socioeconomic reasons, for all types of other types of, of reasons that for the most part, they didn't really have to deal with in Eastern and Central Europe at the time. So I would say that on balance, those mass estates, those housing estates that use that prefabricated building technology were more successful in Central and Eastern Europe than they were in the right. West. Right. And and how long did this uh, sort of future or retro futurist style last? Hi, this is Rhonda in Virginia, and I support Cold War conversations because I think the work that Ian is doing is critically important. I think it's vital to record the firsthand accounts of people who lived and experienced the Cold War uh, because it illustrates history in a way that a book never can. So thank you so much for the podcast. It's my favorite podcast, and I look forward to it every week to be like Rhonda and help to preserve these incredible stories of the Cold War. As a monthly or annual supporter, you'll be able to listen ad-free, you'll become one of our community, get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate to find out more. Well, I, the, you know, this, that's funny because I wouldn't call this style retrofuturism. I would say this is just kind of the technological phase. In fact, that's even what the tech, yeah. the Czech architects now call the 1950s, the technological phase. But what might be interesting to your listeners is that there was a big turning point in the 1950s in architecture, and that does eventually lead us to retrofuturism. And that was the World's Fair in Brussels in 1958. That was, uh, for both East and West, that was a kind of astonishing world fair in terms of the styles that it set, in terms of the new aesthetic that it, that it created. And it was very much this kind of retrofuturism. Um, you know, if you can think of the Jetsons, you know, that yeah. old cartoon from the, from the U.S. in the 1960s, um, or like the, those kidney bean-shaped tables in Germany called the Nierentisch. Did you ever I've, hear that I've expression? I've not heard that expression. Oh, okay. But you can yeah, ma yeah. imagine it yeah, in your no, mind, right? 1960s, cool furniture, all that stuff. Anyway, um, the Czechoslovak Pavilion in 1958 took the top prize that year. And it was, it was designed from top to bottom, uh, in, in, in a lot of these emerging aesthetic, uh, details. You know, just, just the, even, even the knives and forks and the beer mugs in the beer drinking tent were all designed specifically for this World Expo and, and set a new tone of design. The, the, the Soviet pavilion was also very impressive. Almost all of the Eastern European uh, and Central European pavilions were, were you know, uh, tried to, you know, whatever, tried to anticipate these new aesthetic uh, design changes that were coming. And it's no exaggeration to say that 1958 it really set the tone for the next decade, all the way till the Warsaw Pact invasion in 1968. You know, everybody was racing to to build, um, you know, to build, uh, you know, how to, how to describe it, kind of an optimistic look at the future about how it was going to be, to add conscious design elements that were built on geometric forms 
um, to, to incorporate new materials, not just yeah. prefabricated concrete, but also a bit of glass, uh, you know, a bit of uh, plastic, a bit of, um, yeah. you know, all kinds of different uh, and, materials and that were being developed. And is this where all these amazing sort of like, I've, I've seen photos of these bus shelters in the Soviet Union and stuff like that. Is that during that period where, yeah. Yes. It, it, those bus shelters may not have been built during that period, but those bus shelters were designed by architects that were looking at what came out of ultimately what came out of 1958 Brussels Expo and and lots of other things, of course, you know, maybe they weren't thinking about that expo when they when they designed it, but they were definitely feeding off that kind of impulse that was created right. at that. And, and was that style that, you know, the and I'm going to paraphrase here, the Eastern Europeans came up with that that expo copied in the West? It was all borrowed and copied, I think. I, I, I don't even know if this was in the uniquely Eastern or Central European phenomenon. Uh, I think that that type of style really took the world by storm. You know, think about the 1964 World Expo in, uh, in New York City was also very much built on Futurama, you know, looking to the future, uh, the space age, uh, the 1950s and the 1960s, the, the, um, you know, just the development of all the new materials that came out of the 1950s and 60s from the space program and, and other things and the war. Um, it, there was some type of optimism that was permeating, uh, you know, the, 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 on the mind, in the minds of designers and architects at that time. And, uh, and, you know, that's basically what we got in the 1960s on both sides right. of the wall. And what would you say are good examples of, of that either in Eastern Europe of that style? Uh, I think there are lots of good examples of that style, actually. Um, you know, uh, it, it's funny, but a lot of the housing projects that were built in the 1960s uh, in, 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 uh, had those, you know, they call it here, they call it the beautiful phase, at least the, the, um, at least the uh, exhibition that I went to last year at the Museum of, of um, Applied Arts here in Prague. Um, you know, okay, so you had those... Um, you know, you had those housing projects that were built, like we like we said, but in the middle of the housing project, there might be a kind of curve of the, um, uh, you know, hard to describe, but maybe some of the roofs. Um, there were little statues, uh, 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 very futuristic looking statues. Maybe it was just a flower or, or some other kind of decorative element. Um, uh, maybe that Alexander Tower in, the, in Berlin, the that TV big thing tower. with the ball on top of it. Yes. Okay. Uh-huh. Yes. I, 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 you know, I don't know if that's a good example, but it's a, it's a, it's an excellent. Uh, it's, a, it's really. Yeah. An no, I think question. it probably is a good example because it is that um, futurist style and so, and a style that had never been seen before. And and for East Germany, they wanted to use but, it as almost like a lighthouse to show the superiority of socialism. Yes, there's a there's there's a folly aspect to that kind of architecture, and there's also a kind of um, ideological aspect to the architecture. I mean, when you look at those buildings back then, now they look a little bit anachronistic and even a little bit kitschy. But back then, if you would look at that type of building, and you would think, "Aha, uh-huh, that's what the future is going to look like," and that's the future that we're building here yeah. under socialism. Yeah, and that would have been the it, subtext and the message that they wanted to underline there. Absolutely, and it was important to do that. And of course, there was a lot of national pride when these countries would win these uh, international awards, etc. Actually, I did think of a good example of of um, of one of these Jetson style buildings that um, probably your readers will not know about, but there's a small town in the uh, in the eastern part of of the Czech Republic in Silesia. It's called Havijov, and the, they built a train station there in the 1960s. That um, you know, Havijov was one of those buildings that was created. That was one of these cities that was created after World War II. Mm-hmm. It was a mining town, and it was uh, it. You know, many of the buildings are built with this kind of socialist, realist housing at the beginning. They were built in the early fifties. The worker housing there is kind of majestic. You know, you might say now it's a bit run down. It doesn't look so nice, but at the time it was like, wow, these are miners and they're living in palaces. Um, and to fit the 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 you know the grandiose ideas of the town at that time, of course, fashions had moved on. We weren't building socialist realist anymore, but we're going to build one of these retro futuristic train stations for our town. 
And uh, if you look at it and take a step outside, it looks a lot like one of those 1950s, you know, transistor radios or maybe a Zenith television set with the curves and stuff like that. If you go inside, it's a very light um, interior. There's a huge wall of windows on the front. Um, The materials that they used, I mean, it's a very futuristic rendition of a train station that was built in the 1960s. It's, It's cool. You know, I went there last year. Uh, I couldn't believe my eyes, and it fits very well in the in the debate that we're having today about preserving the architecture or not. Because many people look at that architecture in the town and say, "Ah, that was built by the communists. It must be bad. So we're going to knock it down and forget about that whole period. It never existed." But I look at that. You know, I'm not affected emotionally, mentally. You know, I don't have memories of living under communism. I look at that and I think, "What an exquisite." Uh, example of the type of architecture that they wanted to build and and they wanted to 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 say with the buildings from that time and it should be preserved it's 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 interesting wanting to eradicate that period of history as a as a permanent memory i mean in you know that the example I I sort of find weird is you know in in Berlin for example the um, the Reich Air Ministry from World War Two from the Nazi era that was built by Speer I think is still used, um, and it was mm-hmm. used by the East German government as a as a government building, um, although it was right. probably nearer to the socialist realist style. Um, you know, minus obviously the the Nazi decorations around it, so it was probably a, a, a reasonable fit. Right. But it's sort of wanting to eradicate that recent history from memory um, is right. a you know it's a it's a it's a constant issue that comes up throughout the world. I think. Right, and and on the flip side of that is also not wanting to advocate too strongly to preserve it. Yeah. In a sense, if you know what I mean, it's like it's it's not just an eradication thing. It's also, look, I don't want to go out there and say that I think it's worth preserving somehow, really sticking your neck out a lot. You know, I think a lot of the old Nazi buildings in Germany are kind of falling down. You know, there isn't a, a let's restore no. this, you know, movement, really. I mean, prob- there probably is, but yeah. it's not very strong yeah. or vocal. Yeah, and as I far think I know. it's accepting the architecture for the for the beauty of it. And obviously, beauty is in the eye of the beholder to use a cliche term. And, you know, some, right. some people will view right. it as a beautiful building. Other, others, you know, will not. Um, one question I wanted to ask you is in, right. in East Germany. And as you can tell, that's probably more my area of speciality. They did used to use quite a lot of stained glass. Was that a trend also in Czechoslovakia and other areas of Eastern Europe? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, it was, one of those materials that was sort of resurrected um, <clears throat> in the retrofuturistic 60s. You know, they were experimenting with different types of materials. Uh, they used a lot of uh, ceramics on the sides of buildings back then. Um, they used a lot of stained glass. They used a lot of um, blown glass, colored glass, uh, tiles. Um, you know, a lot of a lot of this. Obviously, there's a nationalist component. I mean, not a nationalist component, but I mean, there's a national component to all of this because at least in in Czechoslovakia, there was a a thriving, well, maybe not so thriving, but there was a traditional glassmaking industry and there were glassmaking artists still around in the 1960s. And they were, you know, incorporating national tendencies into the artwork too, because that was also a phase that socialist architecture went through to try to pull out you know, the nation, the folk, the people, you know, into that, into that whole discussion. And they used traditional arts and crafts like glass making as part of that effort. So with, with the retro futurism, is there an obvious end to that or does it sort of merge into the later period? There's no strict delineation between any of these periods, (laughs) I guess. There, there, there is not an, in, 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 but, but, you know, lucky or not, we do have some delineation. You know, we have the death of Stalin with socialist realist. Um, you know, the technological phase, uh, goes up to Brussels, say. I mean, this is just very crudely, you know, sketched out. You know, you're right. There's no fixed 
dates on any of this stuff. Then suddenly we have this period, the beautiful period, where we have all these uh, crazy buildings going up and some interesting ideas. Coincides with that period in the 1960s in Czechoslovakia, but also throughout Central and Eastern Europe, of a relative political freedom, a thaw. You know, we have Khrushchev, we have the struggle for power in Moscow. Um, you know, we have a period where the Soviet domination doesn't appear as monolithic and as strong, and it gives this, um, and it gives into the 1960s. Under Khrushchev, it gives the feeling in these smaller countries that they have a little bit of wiggle room to be more creative. Um, and then, of course, in 1968, if you want your endpoint with the Warsaw Pact invasion of Czechoslovakia in August of 1968, that pretty much all comes to come to an end. I think um, you know you're right when you say that there are not really specific endpoints to all these things. But I think in this case, I think the retrofuturistic phase came to and end uh, with the Warsaw Pact invasion of Czechoslovakia in August of 1968. Um, you know, this this hurt that effort in many, many different ways. Uh, you know, for one thing, it was a reassertion of Soviet dominance in Eastern and Central Europe in all the countries. Um, it was a reassertion that there is really one way to do things in Central and Eastern Europe, and that goes through Moscow not through any of these yeah. smaller cities or countries. So any um, any continuation of, in, in Czechoslovakia, any continuation of the retrofuturism would have seemed a harking back to the Dubček era and therefore not acceptable. This brings us right back to the Hotel right. Thermal, I love it when it all it. comes around. That, it's <laughs> almost as though we planned it, Mark. <laughs> yeah, exactly, didn't we? The... Um, the Hotel Thermal was designed in the 1960s. It was designed on the drawing board in 1964 and 1965. The couple that designed it, the McConan couple, they were working among that. They were they felt the freedom to actually borrow from the West. That's why it's so strongly brutalist. You know, you couldn't, before that, you couldn't have, in Czechoslovakia, you couldn't have actually consciously adopted views, architectural points of view from, from the West. So obviously in a sense um but they had that they had that freedom and then in 1968 we have all those changes we have the warsaw pact invasion many of the artists and many of the um of the art of the you know the designers that 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 helped to build and to help to 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 furnish the um the hotel thermal were later kicked out of the party you know we're we're, we're found on the wrong side of that de debate you know in 1968, they were among the losers. And uh, somehow the whole project, I wouldn't say was discredited, but it, it certainly was altered in a sense. That building wasn't actually finished until about seven or eight, nine years later, something like that, 1976 or 1977, well into what the Czechs call the period of right. normalization. So it was completed and it was still used, but no other buildings of that style were were built well not of that retro futurism but now we're coming into a different phase in the 19 uh in in say after 1968 we have a period of uh, of normalization we have a period of conservatism in architecture we have a period of going back to that 1950s style let's just build houses for the masses and we also have the, you know, the, 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 the hard to describe really. I mean, it's like you said, there's nothing that's really hard and fast about any of this. It's all just making generalizations, but, um, you have a kind of different type of style that came in a kind of bulky style, a kind of, a kind of state sponsored brutalism. You know, we see this in many uh, buildings that were built in Czechoslovakia in the 1970s. Um, so not the lyric retrofuturism, but a lot of international influence still. You know, um, one good example of this is the Kotva department store in Prague, in central Prague. I don't know if your listeners will be familiar with that, but um, it's another one of those buildings like the thermal that sort of stands right in the middle of an UNESCO protected heritage site from a completely different era. But it's a it's a building. It's a stark brutalist building from the 1970s that sits right in the middle of all this splendor. It's actually right next to the Art Nouveau um, um, the municipal house in Prague. And it's a kind of cubed, 
It's a kind of tile brick faced series of hexagonal cubes all sort of melded together with some kind of concrete sheathing on the front of it. I mean, it's a fascinating, fascinating building with so much texture to it, but it also happens to be, you know, I don't want to say ugly, but it happens to be kind of unsettling yeah, if you're I not into I, that style. I've seen you know? this on your uh, blog, and we will be sharing links to uh, Mark's blog and, and some photos. I think this is the one where even the interior has got this sort of hexagonal theme as well, isn't it? Well, they, they, you know, I mean, they came up on structural limitations when they were building the building because, you know, the points, you know, the points that the load bearing points of the building had to be respected. You know, even no matter whether you're communist or capitalist or whatever, you still have to respect <laughs> the laws of physics. And so they had to, you know, they had to build the, 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 the load bearing walls to, to support the hexagons. And so that meant that you have these kind of I almost they almost look like trees in the middle of the store that yeah. hold up the it's structure. It's almost like vaulted pillars. You no, know, it, it almost it, in it throughout the building. Yes. It's yes. almost going back to a gothic style yes. rather than a <laughs> Exactly, exactly. It's gothic pillars, but gothic pillars holding up uh ceilings that are only one or two stories high. I mean, you know, it's 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 ludicrous in a certain sense when you look at it, but at the same time you feel the pressure that the architects were under to build buildings that they thought were artistically demanding and they thought that they were, were artistically re rewarding, but at the same time met the specific demands of the people who would be judging and approving these buildings. And, you know, somehow I, when I look at Kotva, I see the whole ball of tension all wrapped yeah. up in that yeah. building. I mean, are you aware of any buildings that failed to get uh, permission to be built because they were thought to be ideologically dodgy, to use a phrase. Many, many. I think there were many. You know, um, I think what would happen then is that you would you would design. You're an architect working in some you know working in some research institute in some central or eastern European country. You know, you have your own personal ambitions. Uh, you have the own styles that you really like from all over the world. Of course, you can, you know, you, you know about these things from whatever, from whatever sources, but you realize that you have to work within a specific room, you know, within a specific space, you know, for in, in all the, in all these different ways. Um, so you put something to the planning board, it gets pushed back, you push it back, it gets pushed back, etc. So finally, you come up with a sort of compromise structure that satisfies no one and yeah. satisfies everyone, basically. And that's the kind of building that you get. Um, a good example of this is the Hotel Intercontinental in Prague, that was also a building that was built in this kind of 1970s, I hesitate to use the word brutalist because it is a brutalist building, but you know, it, it's kind of a communist brutalist building. If yeah. you can, if you can, if you know what I mean there. Um, okay. So they also wanted to build, it was a, a, for an international hotel chain. They also wanted to build a building that would appeal to international travelers that would show Prague to be uh, one of these emerging international destinations, um, you know, that would conform to all those aesthetic qualities that you associate with luxury and, and, and all that stuff. And, um, and so they built a building. It was basically in the brutalist style. It's, uh, you know, it's several stories high concrete thing. Um, you know, the exposed concrete is on the outside. It has a kind of, it looks almost upside down from a certain perspective. Um, it's got a kind of cantilevered, uh, support system that you can take a peek at. Anyway, it looks like one of those buildings that if it was in your own hometown, you'd say, well, let's just knock it down. Um, but at the same time, it expresses that, you know, that sort of compromise mentality that happened. And I actually kind of really like it as a building. Yeah. Yeah. I think I've stayed there. I think we had a conversation about the, um, hotel continental before. One, one of the, um, you know, one of the, and then when I talked about this kind of push and pull between planner and, and, uh, between architect and planning commission, um, you know, the, uh, the, 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 um, the planning commission ultimately wanted a building that would suit the, um, the surroundings of the building, which was part of the old Jewish, uh, part of Prague, actually the old Jewish ghetto, you know, if you will. And, uh, and it had to meet certain aesthetic requirements to fit in with that part of the old town. So they, they, they kind of came up with, uh, uh, a style of architecture that would get them past the planning commission that there was called 
ghetto wow. modern, if you can believe it. So, you know, so so this is basically the way that these kind of buildings were built. You know, I mean, um, it was a push on part of the architects and it was a pull, you know, on the part of the planners. And um, and eventually we got what we got. And um, I think on some level, the buildings are unsatisfying for everybody and maybe kind of lend itself to that. Let's just tear it down mentality because maybe the buildings aren't complete works of yeah. the vision of the architect, for example, that they do reflect a certain undue influence maybe by, uh, by the, by the government or by the ideological constraints that somehow, I don't know, harm the building in some certain way. I mean, I'm just, you know, yeah. talking here and yeah. not, not really. Because obviously the, the, the one or one of the most famous sort of communist buildings, let's say, is the um, palace of the people in Bucharest. Right. Now, that style seems to be more socialist realist than and it seems to be harking back harking back to that era yeah it was built in the 1980s i'm not trying i'm not trying to demolish your complete no, argument no no, here, no, Mark. no 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 of course not you know i know oh, it's no. Ceausescu that was probably um well no not probably but was absolutely influential in 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 that design but it's interesting, you know, you know, that, as you said, there's no hard lines in these periods and there are various aberrations in between. Exactly. Um, it's so difficult to describe, but it's not socialist realist in the sense that you don't see those worker motifs necessarily on the exterior of the building. It, it doesn't really, it's hard, really hard to describe. It doesn't fit that paradigm perfectly well, but I'll tell you what it does fit pretty well. Um, Part of the Ceausescu um, myth or the myth of that building, of course, was to incorporate Romanian materials, you know, to really build it from the national perspective. And so, you know, I can't say that all of the materials there, but the glass, the marble, the wood, the brick, the cement, the workmanship, all of that stuff reflects that national tradition that Romanian was trying to do. So... I think you can look at that building not necessarily as a celebration of communism, but as a celebration of Romanian workmanship and craftsmanship. I mean, I'm really putting a very positive luster on a on a on a, on a horrible building that that should never have been built in the first place. Yeah. But if you can take something out of it artistically, you have to see it, I think, in that term. Yeah, yeah, and I think you're probably right because during that period, you know, Ceausescu was trying to take a, a semi-independent line there and underline the the strength of Romania as a separate country so I, you know I think you can read that into it and and there was a certain amount of wiggle room you know it's it, you, know, we, you know we didn't really talk too much about all the phases that socialism went through in all these periods because of course you know not only is our architecture changing is technology changing but also what it means to be socialist or what uh, what what say what the not necessarily what it means, but say what are the overarching kind of ideological aims in socialism were changing a lot. At some point you go through an international phase where everything is, you know, all kind of orchestrated all around the world, you know, the workers unite. And then at some and other points, it's, uh, you know, um, to give more uh, influence and power to the national tendencies, you know, what it means to be Polish, what it means to be Romanian, what it means to be Czechoslovak. And that was due a lot in a large part to satisfy, you know, political demands in the various countries for autonomy and uh, reflected the strength and weakness of Moscow. There were so many variables. So, you know, socialism itself was, uh, was um, you know, was a moving target, you know, hard for these architects to, to hit, you know, sometimes. Yeah, yeah. And, and are there, you know, particular examples which you think are you know aside from the ones we've already commented on are there particularly good examples that you think are more worthy of preservation than others you know the question of preservation is really really a big one and um I, you know i was thinking about this today as we were you know thinking about our discussion tonight and um you know why why do we preserve architecture anyway i mean i think it's a really good question i think that's probably the basic question you know when we go to france on a holiday and we walk around all those grand cathedrals that were built 800 years ago or walk into those castles and you know we admire those in, insane structures that were built 
you know, to reflect, say, the rivalry between the church and the king, you know, that pushed them into building these greater and greater structures just to attract the most attention. We're not visiting France today. We're stepping back into France how it was, you know, 800 years ago or something and trying to feel that and trying to live that. And to a certain extent, preserving architecture in Eastern Europe, contemporary architecture is going to help us to solve the same problem. You know, when you come to, when your listeners to the Cold War Conversations podcast want to experience the Cold War, uh, you know, um, they can't, you know, they can't act. There is no Cold War anymore. They can't actually go to a Cold War, but they can go back to the buildings that were there in the Cold War and they can feel, you know, a little bit of the coldness in those buildings. And that's why we preserve architecture to keep our memory of those places intact. So I think the question you want to ask is, what are the buildings that are worth, you know, what are the buildings that really express memory the best, that are worth preserving that way? So, so as, a, as a physical expression of that period of history or a, or a memory of that period of history? Absolutely. I mean, I, I, you know, I, I think that if we knock down all these buildings or if we just kind of forget communism ever existed, um, et cetera, I think in a generation or two, even before that, we won't really even remember this period that well. It wasn't very long in history. It was a blip in a certain sense, you know, looking forward. So, you know, I think, you know, you have to ask yourself how much of it is worth rem remembering. And, you know, I think, and I think you think that a lot of it is worth remembering. It's, you know, it was just a fascinating, you know, amazing period in, in history, probably never to be duplicated again. Well, it and, um, yeah, I, th I think it's yeah. a, 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 I, it makes an interesting period for me because it was influenced by ideology, whereas almost every other period of history is more about uh, religion or nationalism or or something else. And this period is relatively unique in terms of its ideological influence. Exactly. Yes, yes, yes. It was very strongly ideological. Um, and, you know, on, on some level, of course, it was a geographic power play. It reflected, you know, uh, uh, existing technological uh, conditions at the time, economic forces, etc. There were just many, many different variables that went into it. And architecture helps us to remember and helps us to understand the various phases of those of that period. You know, I think it would be a ter terrible mistake to um, to simply say, well, that was a nasty period. We're not going to live through that again. Let's just knock all these hideous buildings down. No, I don't think that's the right way to look at yeah. this at all. And I think we, we see similar um, problems in the West, for example, where nuclear command centers or places like that, people are wanting to demolish them or or not preserve them or, you know, use them for something else. Um, whereas they are great in terms of understanding that paranoia and fear that pervaded the world during that period, which, as you say, is almost impossible. Well, you just can't reproduce it now, but there's no better way of telling a story than going to the physical place where some of it happened. Exactly. And, and I think that part of the fun of architecture is... You know, not just whether the buildings are pretty or not. I mean, I think that's a pretty banal way to look at a building, actually. I mean, I, I understand it. Uh, obviously, we want to be surrounded by things that we like and are attractive. Um, but, uh, but, but buildings tell a story. They really tell the whole, they tell an amazing story about, um, you know, just to go back to that hotel thermal again. Okay. The hotel thermal tells that, uh, tells the story of, 1970s Czechoslovakia very, really very well. I mean, when you look at the interiors, when you look at the design, when you look at the artists that they employed um, and the styles that they worked in, um, it's, it's a real national effort to create something that looked like that. And I think it would just be a terrible loss to either renovate that building in a way that conforms to our 2019 idea of a beautiful building or to, you know, to knock it down or, or somehow neglect it to the point where it doesn't have this kind of magic anymore. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not saying that we need to just live in the 1970s. Um, but I am saying that, uh, that I think that we need to respect 
some of the workmanship and craftsmanship and design that went into that building at the time, um, because that period is never going to happen again. Every building reflects a unique period in time. And the best way to appreciate a building, I think for me, is to try to get your head into that time. And, you know, when we approach history, that's what we do as historians. We try to get into the heads of the people who lived in that time. So I don't know. I, it's, I, it's very important to me. You can tell you can see that I'm, I'm kind of passionate about this and I write about it a lot on my blog. And, um, I just, I find it very difficult to convince my friends and people around me that this is something worth doing. Sometimes, you know, you know, a lot of people are sympathetic to it. Um, you know, but I'm, you know, I'm committed to well, doing I, it. I think you'll find our listeners are probably a, a very sympathetic bunch to preserving oh, Cold sure. War history. So you, you have got a, a, a friendly um, audience here. Um, is, mm. is there anything else you want, you want to add to the, to the story of communist architecture? Uh, um, well, I mean, you know, it's funny. When people visit me in Prague, you know, they do want to go see Prague Castle. And, you know, obviously that's a big thing and the Charles Bridge and, and everything else. But a lot of times they tell me, okay, show me something from the Cold War. Show me something from, you know, give me some, you know, whatever. I mean, show me some communist architecture. I really want to see that. How was it? People are still fascinated by that period, you know, because of its uniqueness, also because of the cloak and dagger thing. Um, uh, you know, it was a scary time in history, you know. And um, so I find myself taking people, you know, to, to see the Hotel International near my house or to see the nuclear bunker that was under the um, the, the command the command bunker that was under uh, Wenceslas Square, uh, under one of the hotels there, um, to see some old fallout shelters and clubs that are in nuclear bunkers. Um, you know, it's just, it, it's it's a fascination. So... You know, you can't tell me that people are not interested in this. You know, they are. Well, that's it for today's episode. But don't forget to visit the show notes at coldwarconversations.com where there's links, videos and details of some books to help you find out more about today's episode. If you can't wait for our next episode, do visit our Facebook discussion group where our guests and listeners, just like you, continue the Cold War conversation. Just go to coldwarconversations.com and click on the Join the Conversation option. Thank you very much for listening. It is really appreciated. Goodbye. not enjoying the ads well you can avoid them by going to coldwarconversations.com slash donate by becoming a monthly or annual supporter you'll enjoy ad-free listening become a part of our community receive the sought after cold war conversations drinks coaster and bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve cold war history just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate for more information